following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Well, growing up, the Mueller family was a musical family. My mom played the piano, my dad played the violin, my brother played the clarinet, my sister played the flute, I played the trumpet. We were all given lessons from fourth grade on. We were tortured week in, week out. If we didn't make first chair, it was an insult to the family name. Interesting enough, because of that background, whenever I hear really good music, I actually want to play the music with them. Anybody that, that way? You, you, want, you don't want to just hear it, you want to play it with them. And so I think about getting the trumpet out, that's kind of wasted now. I gave that up at 18 after I got saved. Um, I, sometimes percussion. I, I know on the piano, no joke, Gene knows this is true, three songs, right? I can play three songs, and one of them, you know the name of it, it's called what? That's right, Chopsticks. Chuck Swindoll says that <laughs> if you, you know, play Chopsticks, it tells you two things about you that are absolutely true. Number one, you don't play the piano. Number two, you don't mind being obnoxious to people. Okay, that's, that's really the two truths that come out of that. But interesting enough, my dream would be, and Gene's dream would be, that we could play the piano, and that dream is not going to happen in this life, for sure. Uh, that will only happen now if someone is able to actually play through me. I'm hoping that somehow... Chopin is resurrected and could somehow do his masterful work because that would be a dream come true. Now, I know about myself and my desire to play with the music that eventually, if that really did happen and he did play through me in some manner, eventually I would try to take over. I would try to add a little. I would try to embellish, right? And as soon as I did that, we would be back to what? Chopsticks instead of actually beautiful music. Now, the reason I'm sharing that with you is that is an analogy of the Christian life. The Christian life is when you become a Christian. It's not just an external thing that happens to you. You are actually called, John 3, born again. You're regenerated. God lives in you, and through His Spirit, He lives through you. And one of the secrets to the Christian life is actually to be mindful that you're in union with Christ and to live moment by moment, day by day, allowing Christ to live through you. In fact, some of you are now overwhelmed. Some of you have come here today, we don't know the trials you're going through, but you're like hanging by a thread. Some of you, it's just so difficult and so weighty. But what's happening, instead of doing what you should be doing, you're trying to live good. You're trying to do what's right. And what you need to say to God your Father is, Lord, I can't do this. Would you please do this through me? I can't do that. I'm going to step out. I'm going to engage my will. I'm going to step out in obedience, but in dependence upon you. And I'm going to say over and over again, Lord, I can't do this, but you have to. I do that every time I preach. I can't do this, Lord. You have to do it. If it's going to have any good in anybody's life, it's got to be Him through me, not me. Are you tracking with me? That is one of the keys to the Christian life. It is one of the secrets that we don't talk about. It's one of the truths that you need to leave here today owning. You need to say repeatedly this week to yourself, Lord, I can't do this. I can't mow the lawn. I can't wash the dishes. I can't get along with that. That's been a mind. But you can. You can through me. 
and I'm going to depend on you to make that happen. I'm going to step out in obedience. I'm going to engage my will, but I'm going to depend on you and watch you work. Some of you are overwhelmed with temptation. Overwhelmed with it. It's eating you alive. And you need to say, Lord, I can't beat this, but you can. You can. And I'm going to depend on you by your Spirit and let you work through me as I walk in obedience to your Word. I'm engaging my will. It's not passive. I'm engaged. But I'm going to let you work through me. That's one of the keys that you're going to get from this passage. Jesus is saying, look, all you need to do by faith is let me work my will through you. Jesus is going to say to you, let me live, let me minister, let me drive on the 15 freeway somehow so you will do it in such a way, relying on me, let me work through you. That's the truth and why we love this verse that we're covering today. Why did you memorize it? Why did you make it a part of your Christian memory system? It was because this verse speaks of this truth. Galatians 2.20, that's where we find ourselves today. If you're new with us, we're working our way through the book of Galatians, verse by verse. We're now at the very last section of verses in chapter 2, and it contains 2.20, which says, It is no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh in my body right here before heaven, I live by what? Faith in the Son of God. I depend on Him to work through me. Every day, make that decision. Every day that you can't do it on your own. Here's the secret, are you ready, of the Christian life. Hang on, grab your seat right now. The secret of the Christian life is, period, you can't live the Christian life. God has to do it through you. You can't save yourself, you can't sanctify yourself, and you can't glorify yourself. God has to do all of it. You rely on Him to do His work through you. The most important yet forgotten issue is that. Don't live in your own strength according to the flesh, but live in God's presence by the Spirit's power according to His Word. Dependent faith. Act upon your will. Choose to be obedient to the Scripture, but do so, Lord, I can't do it. I'm depending on You. To battle this sin. To love that husband. To cherish that wife. To shepherd these children. To make it at school as a Christian. To be a witness in the workplace. I must trust in you while I step out in obedience to the Word of God. This is a massively important truth, and I'm sharing it with you with a little bit of passion. The reason is because this truth changed my life. When I got a hold of this, everything changed. Every moment of my life was, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't, but Lord, you can. You can. Facing temptation in weird situations, I'm like, Lord, you can beat this thing, and He does. And I'm not being mystical, and I'm not being any weird weirdness at all. Christ will work through you. You just trust Him to manifest Himself. This is how Paul concludes his special personal argument over the power and purity of the gospel of grace. This is how Paul completes the personal section of Galatians, which we're finishing today, the personal section, chapters 1 and 2, and this is how Paul finalizes his confrontation with the Apostle Peter. If you were here last week, and I hope you were, we were talking about verses 11-16. through 16. You remember what happened. Paul went on his first missionary journey. He's there establishing some churches in modern-day Turkey, which is Galatia. He established those churches. He goes back to Antioch. When he gets back, almost immediately, some, 
some zealous Jews who think that being a Christian means you become Jewish are then inserting their thoughts about adding to the gospel of grace by saying, well, it's gospel of grace, but you've got to keep the law, you've got to be circumcised, you've got to keep the ceremonies to be a Christian, to be a Christ follower, and they're making their way in there, and Paul's shocked that they're making so much progress. So he writes this letter to address this issue, and he goes after it. In fact, chapter 1 and 2, there's basically two issues that Paul is fighting for. And that is, number one, he's he's defending his apostleship. Because they're undermining him. They're saying he's a weak apostle. He doesn't belong to the twelve. He's less than that. He gave you a cheap gospel that was free, that was easy. It was the gospel of grace. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to keep the law. It's really easy. And they're saying he's a man-pleaser. He's just trying to please the crowds and make it really easy. So they're undermining him, but they're also undermining the gospel itself by trying to add all the Jewish ceremonies, obey and eat only kosher, get circumcised in order to be a true Christ follower. So basically, he's defending his apostleship and he's clarifying and fighting for the true gospel of grace. Both of those came to Paul from above. He became apostle from Christ. He gets the message of the gospel from Christ. And he's yet having to defend that. At the end of chapter 2, he rocks the Galatians. This is actually, the end of this chapter is to me one of the defining moments in the very earliest of church. Okay, this is the very first epistle written by Paul, so it's early in the early church. And he writes this, and it actually changes the course of Christianity. And this moment at the end of chapter 2 is the defining moment. Because you're talking about the spokesman of all the apostles, the incredible, big mouth loud voice, like me, Apostle Peter. Here he is, and, and he's goofing up. What he's done is that the Judaizers came in to Antioch, and they were so influential, saying, you know, you guys should be more Jewish. And how could you do this? You're sinning. You're not keeping the law. You're not keeping the traditions. You're, you're telling them the Gentiles they don't have to be circumcised. Slowly and subtly, they're moving their way towards just hanging out with Jews. So Peter stops eating with the Gentiles. Peter stops actually fellowshipping with the Gentiles. And then he isolates himself from the Gentiles. And it's such a shocking moment that Paul has to confront it. Paul has to speak to it. And it basically makes an incredible statement to the early church. So that's what's happened. Number one in your outline, basically don't be like Peter who subtly defected from the true gospel. Don't be like Peter, who subtly defected. Take a look at verse 11. This is, again, review from last time. When Peter, Cephas, came to Antioch, he came down from Jerusalem, I opposed him to his face. Why? Because he stood condemned, meaning he had sinned. Now, the context here, he got afraid, he got intimidated, he withdrew from the Jews, so much so, excuse me, from the Gentiles, that the other Jews who were in the Antioch church also did that with him, to the point that even Barnabas, the lover of men, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, also remained aloof. It was a shocking moment in the early church. So Paul confronts, so number two in your outline, we're moving fast, be like Paul who declared a biblical gospel of grace. Be like Paul who declared that true grace. And first, like Paul confronted Peter, you need to confront those in gospel error. Now, why do you need to confront people in gospel error? Everybody knows the answer, right? Because when you get the gospel wrong, you're not saved. 
because the gospel has to be salvation by grace. You understand in this room that the difference between Christianity that's taught in the Bible and the other forms of Christianity out there and all other religions, they're all in one big camp. And the big camp is it's salvation by human achievement. Somehow I'm going to be good enough to earn God's favor. God's going to be pleased with me if I'm good enough. Christianity, true, the biblical one, the one that Paul's fighting for, says, no, you'll never make it. You'll never be good enough because in order to be good enough, you've got to be what? Perfect. Thank you over here. There's a letter, letter A for that person right there. What do you have to be to be in God's presence? What's the answer? Perfect. None of us in this room are. And if you're going to try to work your way to heaven, you've got to be perfect. You can't make one mistake, mentally, internally, any way in your nature, any action at all. Not one can you stand in the presence of a holy God. Not one. So that's one way. Well, Christianity teaches that Christ did all the work. God said, you're not going to make it. I'm going to save. God saves sinners. God sends His Son. He bores the punishment for our sin on the cross. He rises from the dead. And when we put our trust in Him, He can cover us in His righteousness and make us right. That's why you need to be feisty about the gospel. You don't have to be feisty about every doctrinal truth that we may teach as a church or you believe that comes right out of the Scripture. But you need to be feisty about this one. This is the one that is the is the definition of the gospel. Look what verse 14 says. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, my translation of that, I pounced on Cephas. I confronted him. Paul, he sees the inconsistency, and it didn't matter that it was in front of everybody. It would be like this morning. I pull up one of you up here and go, you blew it. You were separated. And we're all seeing this. That's what's happening in Antioch. Everybody sees the confrontation. It is a defining moment in the early church. Interesting enough, he pointedly reminded Peter, look, you came and you were eating Spam with the Gentiles. You were having Spam Musabi. You were having a great time. Fried eggs and Spam. I mean, it was awesome. It didn't matter. Pork, pork, pork. You were going for it. You were fellowshipping. It wasn't even an issue. Those things didn't matter. Then these guys came in and they started talking about their Judaism, kind of a subtle, gracious, I'm better than you kind of way, and you withdrew from them. All of a sudden, you sent the wrong message. You were saying salvation is by grace through faith, but you were living by, boy, fellowship is based on works. And and we got to live like Jews in order to have fellowship with the Jews. Paul brought this issue out of the shadows and centered it right on Peter where it needed to be. So everybody saw the stark contrast and the hypocrisy and the danger that the church would lose salvation by grace and that there would be an undermining of Paul's apostleship and that truth as well. So secondly, in your outline, like Paul, clarify and conform to sound gospel truth. He says in verse 15 of part of 16, We are Jews by nature. I mean, we're Jews. And and so therefore, we have this wonderful law. We live by it. We're not necessarily morally corrupt. And we're not sinners, the morally corrupt among the Gentiles, this obvious sin that's out there. Nevertheless, in order to get saved, it's going to be salvation by grace through faith. Uh, We're not justified by working our way, but he says, through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul is very simple. You and I are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? That's it. 
That's the message you need to be feisty about. No law, no living good, no religion can save you. You don't need to do any moral things. You don't need to stand against the social issue. None of that. It's all of that, but only total dependence on Christ and His work on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. I'm trusting my life to that action to redeem me. I'm putting my life, I'm exchanging all that I am for all that He is. An act of faith, an act of belief. And this morning, now Paul finishes this profound word to Peter. So in these verses, remember, he's still confronting Peter. He's still talking to the Antioch church. So you want to make sure you don't lose sight of that. And he does this, he asks and answers the million dollar question. What's the million dollar question? You're going to hear this again in chapter 3 and chapter 4 as we progress. But the million dollar question is, if by grace I'm saved, and God has already declared us righteous, and I don't have to work for it, and therefore all of my sin, past, present, and future, is on the cross, I'm declared righteous, why should we live avoiding sin? The million dollar question is, why should I grow into a more Christ-like person? Well, read the answer aloud with me, if you would, from verses 17 to 21. Let's read it together. And here we go. Uh, Paul is still speaking to Peter. Everyone read together. Here we go. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Stop there and look at my comment. My comment is, now begins, Paul, a challenge to each one of you here today. You are challenged. You are challenged here today. And here's the challenge, and that's the rest of the points that kind of flow out of these verses. And again, these points are just drawn out of the text. Number one, avoid the misunderstanding of grace. Avoid the misunderstanding of grace. The doctrine of justification by faith, now think with me, seems irresponsible. In fact, justification by faith seems like you won the spiritual lottery ticket. Woohoo! All of a sudden, everything's taken care of, right? And it is. But if God gives righteousness away for free, who's ever going to try to please Christ to serve Christ again? Let me put it to you simply. If God justifies bad people, why on earth should we try to live good? That's the question that is anticipated by Paul's answer in verse 17. So in verse 17 is Paul's answer to that question. Listen as he progresses here. Verse 17 says, But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be! Now, too much emphasis on grace is going to make Christ a minister of sin. Meaning this, if a believer in Christ does not need to keep the law in any fashion, then logically this would mean that justified sinners can continue in sin with no repercussions. Are you getting this? When I'm justified by Christ, I can live any way I like. The problem with that is that it's faulty for two reasons. Are you ready? Why can't we live any way we like if every sin has been forgiven past, present, future? The reason is 
is because not only are you justified, you're regenerated, so you've been given a new heart that wants to obey. Secondly, you're in union with Christ. Your life is now lost and combined in Him. Does that make sense? And because of that, in Christ dwelling you through His Spirit, there's no way you're going to live in continual sin and be a happy person. You're not. You're going to want to deal with it because you're in union with Christ. Not because you're earning your salvation, but because you want to please Jesus. And you want to walk in obedience to Him. And you live in Him and one with Him. That's the message here. So this describes, actually, this verse, the problem the Judaizers were having with Paul. To them, Paul had become an outlaw. All right? Uh, what happened to Paul, the Pharisee, who kept the law, and they're looking at now he, he lives like a Gentile sinner, not a Jew. Paul used to keep every detail of the law, and now Paul's eating spam and pork and unholy food and with uncircumcised Gentiles, and to their disgust, Peter had joined them in this heresy. In their eyes. In their eyes. This is why the Judaizers worked so hard to corrupt Peter and to intimidate him, to abandon his believing Gentile friends and to stop his Gentile ways. And if the Judaizers were right, now listen, if they were right, if eating the food of the Gentile, hanging out with Gentiles, not getting circumcised, not participating with the Jewish religious customs is actually sin, if that were true, it's not. But if that were true, it's not. But if that were true, it's not. But if that were true, then Christ was wrong and Christ was teaching people to sin. That's the conclusion if that were true. And Paul shocks them with this blasphemy because what he says is, so what does he say? Christ is a minister of sin? Are you kidding me? This is Christ we're talking about. Now we know from the Gospels and the Epistles, obviously God is sinless. Christ is sinless. And we also know that he really actually clarified even this issue of food. Since we're focusing on that, there's other things that we could focus on. But food, in Mark chapter 7, verse 18, Jesus said, Do you not understand that whatever goes into a man from the outside cannot, what? Defile him, because it doesn't go into his, what's that word? Heart. Okay, it's a, this is a heart issue. It goes into his stomach, is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods, what? Clean. Food wasn't the issue. And Peter gets schooled in Acts 10. A voice came to heaven, get up Peter, kill and eat. Before he can share the gospel with the Gentiles, he's got to understand that they're not outside the kingdom. And so he says, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. So Christ taught that food didn't matter. But these Judaizers, when they discovered that these apostles were living like Gentiles, and it really bothered them that Paul lived this way, that Peter lived this way. Basically, they wanted to be the ones who would then correct them. They're, they were so proud, they're going to go, no, 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 you're not keeping the ceremonies. You're, you're eating the wrong food. Now watch, in their minds, even though the gospel frees them from that, in their minds, those individuals are sinning. Right? Because no Jews going to eat that food. All the Jews are going to keep the ceremonies. So in their mind, they're sinning. They're not. They're not being immoral in any way. And they're neglecting again the truth. One more time that you are regenerated, born again, made do as a Christian, given a heart, Romans 6.17, that wants to obey Him. Number two, you're in union with Christ. And the argument of this passage is that you're in union with Christ. You are one with Him. He is one with you. And because of that, you don't want to live this way anymore. In fact, the Judaizers wrongly concluded that free salvation, justification by grace, leads to a license to sin. It's almost assuming that 
Jews don't sin and Gentiles don't sin once we become Christians. Now, any Gentiles here, once you become a Christian, do you still continue in sin sometimes? Do you still sin? Anyone? Yes? Oh, and I heard you, you're in the same boat. Okay? Now understand, if you're a Christian. And that's what Martin Luther said. Martin Luther said, a Christian is not someone who has no sin or feels no sin. He is someone to whom, because of his faith in Christ, God does not impute his sin. That's crucial. Christians are sinners too, but their sins do not count against them. Listen, Christianity is a faith for people who are bad. You're sinful. It's not people who are good. It's people who are bad who need a Savior. Correct? You have to come to the realization that you are an affront to a holy God. Listen, there's a lot of similarities between a church and a prison. They're both designed for bad people. Are you getting it? They are. And Paul's airtight logic in verse 17 condemned Peter. He's standing right there. Because Peter's action, in effect, made it appear that if Christ was lying, almost, and, and, and thinking this thinking is not only completely wrong, it's blasphemy. Absolute blasphemy. In fact, that's why he uses the strongest negative in the Greek language, and it's may it never be. When you see this phrase, may it never be, that is the strongest negative you can say in the original language. You see it in Romans 6. You see it several places throughout the Scripture. May it never be. Certainly not. God forbid. Students would say, no way. Stuff shirts would say, perish the thought. But it's not going to happen. And Christ, that He would ever be the servant of sin. Listen, when God justifies sinners by faith, that's us, He's not abiding and abetting our sin. The very suggestion is offensive. In fact, in John, excuse me, not John, James 1.13, says, God cannot sin. And nor can the Lord be held responsible for my sin. If I'm still a sinner after I become a Christian, it is no one's fault but my own. Are you tracking with me? Who's responsible for your sin? The answer is, you are, not God. That's what confession is. It's saying, I am saying that I'm responsible and you're not. You're agreeing with Him. So, the doctrine that really does promote sin is when you have a religion or justification that's by law, by works, by living good. Because what are you when you are working your way to heaven? You're proud. You're thinking somehow my efforts are going to make me right with God. You're self-centered. And you increase in your sin before God in the very truest sense. Paul shows this by using his opponent's argument against him in verse 18. Look at verse 18. Still track with me here. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. I, I cross over. I'm violating God's standard. Now what is this? What is this rebuilt what I've destroyed? Get it? Now watch. This is what Paul had done. He had destroyed the Old Testament law as a method of salvation. I can't make it by living good. To trust only in salvation by grace. He had destroyed it. Peter had done the same thing. Peter had destroyed the law by living by grace, but when pressured by the Judaizers in this circumstance, in this situation described here, Peter had tried to rebuild a system of salvation, of law-keeping, that had previously been destroyed. That's what he's saying when he says this. Remember, he's talking to Peter here. All right? And he's saying, Peter, you had destroyed the law 
you were now living like a Gentile. You were eating with the Gentiles. Again, violation of, of Jewish tradition. But you weren't being immoral. You were just doing this. But you destroyed that. And now you're saying, well, no, I need to bring that back. You see what he's saying? Paul's saying, you destroyed it. Don't bring it back. That's not what it's designed to do. First, he told the Gentiles they're saved by faith. He later made the works of the law a test of Christian fellowship. Peter did that. He told them, listen, you're saved by grace, but then he started to bring the law back in when he behaved by withdrawing himself from them. Are you getting it? He was basically rebuilding what he had destroyed. And now the Galatians are trying to do the same thing. And that's why Paul's writing this. They're trying to build into salvation by grace the law. They, they had destroyed the law, and now they're trying to put it back in as a necessary element to salvation. And if the Galatians did that, they would become lawbreakers all over again. In fact, once you add works to grace, you destroy grace. You become, verse 18, transgressors. You violate salvation by grace. The law's purpose is to show us that we're sinners. And so the more of it that gets rebuilt, the more sinful we become. F.F. Bruce puts it this way, anyone who, having received justification through faith in Christ, thereafter reinstates law in place of Christ, makes him a what? A sinner all over again. You cannot keep the law to be right with God, and if you put it back in, you've wrecked it. You've destroyed it, and you've increased sin. That's why he says, Number two in your outline, live as one who is dead to the law. You're not going to earn your way to heaven. Live as one who is not going to earn their way to heaven. Christian, listen, this is for you too. Live as one who is not going to earn their way to heaven. Live under the grace of God. In Christ, the law has been destroyed. Look at verse 19. It's not a way of getting right with God. He says, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Practically, keeping rules will not get you saved, and maintaining rules will not keep you saved. To die to the law means Paul, the former Pharisee, who used to live for the law in every detail, now as a Christian who is saved by grace through faith, is dead to the law, meaning Paul is no longer under the law's power because of God's grace. Is Now he is alive to God, and because of Christ's work on the cross that was done for him, not that he earned it himself. So the penalty for breaking just one of God's law is what? Anybody know? What's the penalty for breaking the law? Death. So, anybody lie? Just one, that's all you need. Death. Eternal death. Just one lust, just one word of anger, just one selfish act before a holy God, one harsh comment, and you're condemned to die. But, here's the good news. If someone died in your place, then the law has been paid for. Are you with me? If someone dies for that, then the crime of breaking the law is paid. And that's what Paul says, verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law. The penalty of the law has already been carried out. You died with Christ. The law died with Christ. The law's demand of death was satisfied in the death of Christ. Can I hear an Amen. So you're, you no longer have to work your way to heaven. Having stopped trying to please God, oh, this is so sweet. Having stopped to please God by trying to keep the law, and that was Paul's life as a Pharisee. Paul exchanged his damning pursuit of self-righteousness to the life-giving grace of Jesus Christ 
and now imputed righteousness. Are you getting the difference? He's saying, I'm trying, instead of working my way to get God's righteousness, now, by faith, I just receive His imputed righteousness. Don't you love that? One way is impossible, and the other way is the only way. The way, the truth, and the life, and no one shall come to the Father except through me. That's what's being taught here, and that's what's being explained. So when Christ died, Paul died. At least as far as the law is concerned, Paul died, and Christian, you died to the law in the death of your substitute. When he died for you, you died to the law as a way to earn your salvation. And now, Paul and all of the Christians who are in Christ, in verse 19, look at the end of verse 19. You can what? Live to God. You can be alive to God. Every Christian in this room is alive to God. Can you say amen? You are. The moment you quiet your heart, you're in His presence. You walk with Him. You might be struggling in your relationship. You might be you know, out of fellowship with Him. But you are still in Christ. And nothing can change that if you're genuinely born again. So the death that Christ died was reckoned to you. Therefore, you died the old life of trying to earn your salvation is gone. That way is off the table. You were raised together with Christ to a brand new life. You were given salvation. Instead of earning it, you're given it. Is that, come on, you should be smiling right now. So, now, what do you do? Number three, junior hires, this is for you. Live as one who is alive in Christ. Live as one who is alive in Christ. Paul wrote his own obituary here. So now he proceeds to explain the circumstances of his demise. He's, he's basically, how did I die? How did I die? You ready? Here it comes. This is one of your favorite verses in your Jesus person pocket memory verse book. Okay? Here it is. I have been what? Crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. I died. But Christ, what? Lives in me. Paul indicates when he died to the law, it's when Christ was crucified on the cross. You know what was nailed to the cross? This is kind of a fun thing. You know what? The Bible tells us four things were nailed to the, to, the, to the cross. Jesus was nailed to the cross via his hands and feet. Number two, a public announcement was nailed to the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Number three, the debt of your sins was nailed to the cross. Colossians 2. 13 and 14, all of our trespasses were nailed to the cross. How many of them? Wait, wait, wait. How many say it? All of them. Yeah, but that, that horrible thing I did. That, what I, did oh, I can't believe it. All of them. Number four, here's the surprise. Here's the shocker. If you're following Christ and you're a follower of Christ, you were nailed to the cross. Paul just said, I have been crucified with Christ. Crucifixion is not merely a fact of life or a momentous event in history. It's also part of your testimony. You were crucified with Christ. Don't misunderstand. Jesus died once for all. Jesus alone is the God-man. He alone could atone for the sins of the world. By His offering His life in our place, He accomplished all of that. Yet the Scripture says, also verse 20, a Christian has been crucified with Christ. And the tense of crucifixion, it's very clear. The Bible is very exact, and the tense of the language is very correct. It's basically saying, this was accomplished, crucifixion. It was a fact of history, and it has incredible abiding results. In other words, those results continue on to today. And that's why you're here this morning. 
That's why you can be saved. It is that crucifixion that occurred. And understand, Scripture says that it's as if we were nailed to the very tree of Calvary. Not merely as subjective experience, but an objective reality based on your union with Christ. Write that word down. Your union with Christ. Being in Him, united to Him, allows you to die with Christ, the law to be satisfied in Christ. The law is no matter a way of salvation anymore, and your resurrection with Christ, you are alive with Him, now you can live to God and live with God. You are in Him. And Paul describes Christians in verse 16, uh, if you look back there for a moment, as those who have believed in Christ Jesus. So the moment you put your belief, your faith in Christ, you're united with Him. Meaning, you and I are in Christ. We are in union with Christ. Meaning that Martin Luther says, by faith you are so cemented to Christ that He and you are as one person which cannot be separated but remains attached to Him forever. Now this changes everything. Let's go back to it. It teaches that once you're in Christ by faith, there is everything that Christ has done because something that you have done. It is as if we had lived a perfect life, we had died His painful death, and we rose from the dead. Romans 6 says that this, if we were buried in the tomb and we were raised up and ascended into heaven. Everything has done, you are done. In fact, the Bible even says, you are seated in heaven. Why? Because Christ is dead. Because Christ is dead. The only way to get what Christ has to offer, though, is to be united with Him by faith. Not with your idea of Christianity, but what He presents in the revealed Word. In fact, the danger of this is what Calvin says. Calvin says, quote, he warns, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from Him, all that He has suffered and done for salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us, end quote. But once we're in Christ, then we get everything He has to offer, especially His righteousness. Now, you've got to get this. Please understand this. When you're in Christ, God considers us as righteous as His own Son. Not because we are righteous, but because Christ is righteous and we are in Him. Are you getting it? You are as righteous in God's eyes because of what Christ has done. Past, present, future. You say, Chris, that's a dangerous truth to teach. That's what the Judaizers were saying. But they were ignoring the fact that we're one in Christ and we're born again and have a new nature and the indwelling Holy Spirit who wants to obey. The doctrine of union with Christ explains why you're dead to the law, why you're alive to God. It was on the cross that the law carried out its death penalty against us. Therefore, as far as the law is concerned, we are now dead, and there's nothing the law can do to improve our standing before God. Are you hearing me? You're not hearing me. You're not hearing me! The better you live, it never changes your standing before Christ. Get it? You're not trying to earn anything. You're just trying to please the one who did everything for you. But it's already yours. The worse you live, doesn't, if you're a Christian, change your standing. It doesn't. Now, over time, you might prove that you're not his child by living a life that's in absolute defiance to him. We don't know that. 
but your standing, if you're in Christ, never changes. Can I hear an amen to that? It doesn't. That's what union with Christ means. Not only are we dead to the law, it's almost as if we stopped living altogether. Look at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. I'm not living anymore, but Christ lives in me. Paul's saying, I no longer have a life of my own, right? We die to self. The only life that I now live is the Christ, is the life that God puts in me through Jesus Christ. You died to the law. You died to self. You died to this world. And you live to Christ. To live is what? Christ. Your unsafe family and friends live for themselves. Their heart cries, it's my life, my pleasure, my time, my money, my fun, my happiness. Life is all about self-esteem, self-improvement, self-fulfillment, self-indulgence, self-magazine, taking selfies. And I can't resist this. You know why it's called a selfie, right? I say this all the time. It's because narcissistic is too hard to say. So understand, as a born-again Christian, you... Yourself died. Okay, where do you get that from? Verse 20, look what he says. It is no longer I who live. No longer I who live. The world no longer revolves around you. The Christian's life revolves around who? Christ. What does he want? What, and of course he's God and he's the best, so everything you do that he wants is the best you could possibly do. It's the right thing you could do. It's what He wants you to do. How He wants you to spend your time. How He wants you to spend your money. How He wants you to have those relationships. How He wants your affections to be poured out in certain directions. And that does not mean that becoming a Christian because you died yourself is a kind of a suicide. It's not that. We still have a normal physical existence. And that's what He says in verse 20. And the life which I now live in the flesh. Flesh here is my humanness right now in this body, in this life. And since it is the life that I live, I even have a self, but that only self is united with Christ by faith. My life is the life that Christ, verse 20, lives in me. I live by faith in the Son of God. Are you getting this? One more time. Sometimes people don't understand, so track with me. I don't think you're getting it. The Christian life is not about working as hard as you can to live right. One more time. The Christian life is not about working as hard as we can to live right. It's about allowing Christ himself to live his life through. Go back to the piano. I want Chopin to play through me. I want Christ to live through me. You want to say, Lord, I can't. I can't deal with this issue. I can't deal with this trial. I can't. I, I've got no resources how to love this person. How to love this spouse. How to love my kids. How to love my parents. I can't do it. I can't do it. Yes, you're right. You can't. But he can't breathe. You step out on obedience, always through the word of God, but in absolute dependence, saying, Lord, I can't, but I know you can. You don't answer the door of temptation, you let Jesus answer the door. Temptation's knocking at the door. You go, Jesus, would you go get me? You deal with it, because I can't deal with it. This is killing me. And watch what he does. When you live by faith, you're saved by faith, you live by faith. Watch what he will do. Understand, is called, I call it, dependent obedience. There's a lot of moralism going on today. Do, 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 do. It's not do. It's D period, O period. Depend and obey. Not do, depend and obey. Constantly. Total reliance on the Spirit of God as you moment by moment obediently follow the Word of God. That's 
what he's called us to. And that leads us to number four in your outline. Live remembering Christ died specifically for you. Live remembering he died for you. Union with Christ provides the answer to the question posed earlier. If God justifies bad people, then why would we live good? Well, justification by faith alone, is is it a dangerous doctrine that encourages people to live immorally? No! Again, because we're regenerate, we have a new nature, a new heart, the indwelling Holy Spirit, and we are in union with who? Christ. You are one with Christ. The answer is no way. The reason the doctrine of justification by faith does not promote sin is that justifying faith puts you in Christ, in union with Him. We become new people. So new, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says what? You're a new creature. You look the same on the outside, but you ain't the same. You're different. In fact, it says all things become what? New. 2 Corinthians 5.17 We're not simply justified. We are living by faith. And by faith, we are in the crucified Christ. And in that same faith, Christ lives in us. Since we live in Christ, we no longer live in sin. We live in Christ, by Christ, through Christ, for the glory of God. Christian life is like life after death. Amazingly, we were, we were crucified with Christ, dead, both to the law and to ourselves, but we're united with Christ. So our story doesn't end at the cross. It actually doesn't even end with the resurrection. It, it finally will end with our glorification. God has given us a whole new life to live for Him a life of faith responding to love. Which means, to be a Christian is to be one with Christ. And that's why the number one definition in the entire New Testament of what a Christian is, is someone who's in Christ. In Christ. In fact, Paul ends his confrontation with Peter, with and the Judaizers are listening in here with verse 21. Take a look at verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ, what? Died for nothing. Greek scholar uh, Gresham Machen, um, incredible man of God, lived in the 1930s. Uh, he says that this is the key verse of Galatians, and I think he's right. It expresses the central thought of the entire epistle. The Judaizers were trying to supplement the saving work of Christ by grace. They were trying to do it by merit, by good works, by religion, by their obedience to the law. And Paul says that's impossible. The only way that it's possible is you to live perfect, and no one can live perfect. Therefore, verse 21, if anyone insists that our righteousness comes by works or that we have to earn our salvation through our own efforts, that person is saying, Christ died for nothing. In fact, to live with God now and to be in heaven forever. You want to live with God now? You want to be in heaven forever? Then you and I must live perfectly righteous. Since you and I in this room cannot live perfect, then we need the righteousness of someone else who is perfect given to us, and that's what our union with Christ does. It makes us perfect before God, not because we are perfect, but because Christ is perfect. Verse 21, if we could be saved by our own works, then Jesus died a worthless death. But if righteousness can be given freely to sinners by Christ taking our punishment for all sin and justifying us, giving us perfect righteousness, then death, his death, is paramount. It is it is the event of history. So did Christ die for something? Or maybe more accurately, did Christ die for someone? What's the answer? Look at the end of verse 20. He died for me. 
Now, you're missing it. Because Peter and Paul are facing each other in front of everyone. And Paul says, what you say, he loved me, Peter, and gave his life for me. It's very personal. I can't get through this. He loved me. The Pharisees, the hypocrites, the Christian killer, he loved me. And he gave his life for me. He He loved me and gave himself for me. The God who created the grain of sand in your shoe right now and also the myriad of galaxies intentionally and personally loves you. And he not only loves you and me, but he gave himself to rescue me. He volunteered to be my Savior fully and freely. God and man in one person, and I was personally crucified with Christ. I personally rose from the dead, and that divine love is proven. He did all that he did for me. Listen, take this one. Letter A, stop trying to earn your salvation. If you're an unbeliever here, understand your form of Christianity or your religion, whatever you come from, you must be given the grace of God, the grace that saves, by faith, totally entrusting yourself to Christ. There's no other way. You can't earn it. It's got to be given to you. You've got to cry out to give me that heart. Believer, would you please stop trying to please Christ with your behavior You already have been given perfect righteousness. God the Father treats you like you are His Son, Jesus Christ. Learn to love Him from a heart that wants to obey. Learn to love Him in your union with Christ and delight in Him. Let her be. Live your life in union. Depend and obey. Not merely depend, not merely obey, but every day, again, walking as you exercise your will. You say, I'm going to obey. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to choose to do this, but I'm going to say, Lord, I can't do this on my own. There's no way that I'm going to accomplish this. I want it to be you through me. I can't deal with the sin that I'm dealing with. I can't love this difficult relationship. I'm going to depend on you. And so when you leave her today, let her see you've got to be true. Make it your goal every day. Every day, I'm dying to self and I'm living to Christ. Lord, this isn't about me. It's about who? Who's it about? Christ. And in every relationship, every situation, driving on the freeway, no matter what you're doing, you are doing it for Jesus Christ because to live is what? Christ. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks to us. Thank you that it is life transforming. If anyone here doesn't know you, draw them to yourself. Awaken them to the reality of what a true Christian is. It's one who is in Christ. And for the rest of us, would we live in dependence upon you, in union with you, celebrating what you have done for us. We'll give you all the glory for what you'll do. We love you, we thank you, we praise you, and we ask again that you would be glorified by how we respond. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at 
media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.